If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Archaeology, like most aspects of life, has been hit by lockdown this year. But one excavation that has occurred has generated a lot of headlines recently. The case of Marlow Warlord, a 6th century burial above the River Thames. Dr Garbor Thomas directed the excavation, and our content director, Dave Musgrove, caught up with him to find out more. Today I am joined by Dr Garbor Thomas, uh, Assistant Professor of Archaeology at the University of Reading. Um, Welcome. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. How are you? Very well. Very pleased to be here. So I've asked you on the podcast today because you've been excavating uh, on a fascinating 6th century burial uh, of an individual who was, uh, who's been branded as the Marlow Warrior or Marlow Warlord. Now, Marlow being the town in the lower Thames Valley uh, within current commuter distance of London, uh, where the site was found, and, and we'll talk about the Warrior Warlord epithet um, uh, uh, during the conversation, hopefully. So um, first up, can you can you detail the circumstances of this discovery? It was it was by metal detectorists mm. um, who followed good practice and reported their findings to the Portable Antiquity Scheme. Is that uh, is that right? That's right. So back in two thousand and eighteen, um, detectorists um, who are members of a local group in the Marlow area who had permission to detect on this particular land um, were out one day. Um, <laughs> interestingly, it was. To them, it was never sort of regarded as a particularly productive um, field. Um, and one day they got a, a particularly large signal, Sue Washington, and uh, investigated it and came across um, the top of one of a pair of bronze bowls. She recognised immediately that this was something significant and also quite delicate. Um, it had 
um, it was damaged. It had been hit by the plough, this particular bowl in question. So she contacted um, the Portable Antiquities Scheme. Um, this is a scheme that's been running now in, in, the, in the UK since 1997, set up really to collaborate with metal detectorists to record all the finds that they make um, and log all that information on a centralised database, which really is a, a fantastic research resource. So that's how the find was originally um, discovered. And then there was a very small scale excavation led by the Portable Antiquities Scheme um, Finds Liaison Officer just to recover the bowls, um, which they did. And in the process, they also um, revealed a pair of iron spearheads. So those were, those were recovered at the same time. Um, and subsequently, those objects were conserved and acquired by Buckinghamshire Museum in Aylesbury. So although the find is actually in Berkshire, um, the objects are, are, have been acquired by Buckinghamshire because the reason being that they, they happen to be opening um, a new gallery dedicated to the Anglo-Saxon period. And we're on the hunt for some really nice artefacts to, you know, fill their cases. So that's why they were particularly interested in, in acquiring um, these 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 finds, which are relatively local to them. Um, and regular listeners uh, might recall that we had the head of the Portable Antiquities Scheme uh, on the podcast a couple of months ago, Professor Michael Lewis. So if anybody wants to find out more about the PAS, then uh, then go back and look for that that uh, that interview because it's a, a fascinating um, scheme and one that's uh, added a lot to our understanding of archaeology. Um, right. So the so so we found these uh, these initial findings um, and then. Uh, you got involved and you've been digging the site this this August just gone right um in in the in the covid summer so um mm. how was that because I don't mm. think there's been much archaeology happening in this uh, in this year of pandemic has there how how difficult is it to conduct an excavation in those conditions yeah i mean it was it was it was interesting i mean we we didn't have any sort of put it this way going into it we were we felt we were actually very lucky to be able to undertake the work. All other field work run out of the Department of Archaeology at Reading had to be cancelled. What this particular project had in its favour, it wasn't um, large scale. We weren't open it. We didn't open up a very large area and fill it with students and archaeologists. In fact, the approach that we took was much more sort of keyhole surgery, and we opened up a whole series of small test pits with only one or two students um, working in each initially, um, because one of our intentions was actually to provide context for the burial. Um, we weren't sure whether it formed part of a larger cemetery or indeed whether there was any other contemporary activity. And what that uh, strategy soon showed us is that actually we were dealing with an isolated burial, which is quite interesting. So we then doubled down and focused attention specifically um, on... Um, full, trying to fully understand that burial um, and its and its contents. You've dated this burial to, um, I think, the later part of the sixth century. I believe is that right, or is that too specific? Certainly, the sixth century. Um, I'd be hesitant about 
you know, identifying it or, or attributing it to the later sixth. I mean, it could be the early sixth. Um, it's difficult to say at the current time um, without further analysis of the of the grave goods and, until they've been fully cleaned up and conserved. So at the moment, I think it's probably best to call it sixth. I think it could well date to the earlier part of the sixth, actually, not the later, on the basis of the, the style of the objects that have been recovered. So I think probably safest at the current time just to call it a sixth century burial. Now, that falls into a period uh, that you might variously call the late antique, the early Anglo-Saxon, the early medieval, the migration period, or even the Dark Ages. What, uh, what term do you prefer for, for us to go into this conversation with, if any? My preference would actually be early medieval. Um, I think no- North American listeners would be perhaps, perhaps more sensitive to the use of the term Anglo-Saxon, which is, of course, um, the word that was used, you know, very much the label that was, was used in the publicity for this burial in England, but clearly, there have been um, there's been a lot of recent debate about using Anglo-Saxon, given that uh, it's a term that has been appropriated um, by white supremacists. So it does have a lot of baggage attached to it now, and I think this is starting to be uh, to have an impact. I think within academia. Um, although there have been st- a staunch defences for the use of uh, for Anglo-Saxon, I think that, personally speaking, I, I think early medieval is is kind of quite a good catch-all term. It doesn't it doesn't have the same baggage, the cultural baggage. Um, it can be applied um, just as well to you know the far reaches of you know Eastern Europe as it can be in in in. Uh, the home counties of England. So I think a 6th century early medieval burial is probably best. Okay, thank you. Um, And as you say, uh, uh, quite a contentious um, topic. Um, uh, And incidentally, um, on our website, uh, listeners, there's an interesting piece by Michael Wood, Professor Michael Wood, outlining that that conversation. We can put the the link to that on the the show notes. Um, Right, so... Can you tell us what you found? You mentioned the bronze uh, bowl and the spearheads, the iron spearheads. What, what, what's, what else have you um, discovered? So from the systematic excavation of the grave, um, we found uh, several other objects that accompanied the, 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 the interment itself. Um, so talking about the, the, the objects first, um, so in addition to those to those other finds, I mean, probably most notable is the sword. Um, this is, well, it was very well preserved. So we have an iron sword. Um, its blade is double-edged, um, almost 90 centimetres long. But what's quite unusual is that it was placed in a scabbard, which is actually quite well preserved. So we have vestiges of, uh, was it originally a wooden scabbard covered in we think leather and then with decorative bronze fittings on the outside of the scabbard. So this has generally been preserved through um, corrosion products and mineral mineralization from the from the iron sword. Um, and it's it's you know a lot more detail will come out from the conservation and scientific analysis 
will be able to identify exactly what the tree species, for example, was used um, in terms of the, the, the wood for the scabbard. We'll be able to identify the um, other organic elements. So, you know, if the, the, potentially the species of animal that, that, that produced the leather, um, if there's any horn associated with the handle, I mean, you can do biomolecular analyses on these and actually identify them down to species. So um, it's a really, really it's a beautifully preserved object and, and, and we'll be able to extract a lot of information from it. So we've got the sword. Um, in addition to that, we have a really nice glass vessel. I mean, it was crushed and found in, 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 in many pieces, but this is a, a drinking vessel. Um, it's a what's known as a, a Kempston beaker. So this is uh, a style of vessel that's named after a type site in Bedfordshire. Vessels like this were probably made in Kent, potentially on the continent also, but very probably in Kent, and then distributed more widely in, in places like the Thames Valley. There are personal objects associated with the dress of this individual. So we have a buckle in the waist area. It's probably suspended from that, um, the belt. Um, there, there was a, a pair of tweezers, um, a pair of bronze tweezers. Uh, other iron objects are in the head area, um, close to the where, where the glass vessel was placed, a pair of iron shears. Uh, another iron object, ring-shaped, it's found in several fragments. We, we've got more work to do on that to establish exactly what the function of that object is. Um, so, and that would be, I think, in terms of what we can actually, what we recovered, um, that would be the, 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 the key objects. So... Uh Quite a, quite a rich uh, grave. What about the skeleton itself? What can you tell us about that? Right, so the skeleton survived, but not particularly well, partly because it was covered by a layer of um, flint. Now, flint occurs naturally in the geology of this area, where sort of it's, we're, we're in an area that's close to the, the Chilterns, the chalk of the, the Chiltern Hills, um, and flint um, is deposited on top of the chalk um, on hills like this one. So flints have been deliberately selected and placed on top of the body. And that crushed, that placed a lot of weight um, uh, on top of it and crushed the body quite severely. So um, along with just the sort of degradation caused by the soil conditions, um, the skeleton was in quite poor condition, but nevertheless, um, you know, it was it was fairly complete in terms of the main elements. So the long bones, for example, the arms, the legs, um, the pelvis, um, the spine was much, much um, more poorly preserved and the ribs as well. The hands and feet and and and, and were also in fairly fairly good condition, but the skull was very 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 badly crushed. Um, but nevertheless, all the teeth survived, and we'll be able to you know piece together the, sort of the shape and form of the skull quite well um, back in the lab. So we have a fairly complete skeleton, although um, poorly preserved. 
And we've been able to do provisional analysis on the skeletal remains. Um, from that, we can say already some quite clear things about the identity of this individual. Um, I don't know if you want me to sort of go straight into that. Yeah? Absolutely. Please okay. do. Okay. So we're talking about a male who probably died in his 40s or 50s. So a mature adult, and we know this because he has signs of osteoarthritis on some of his bones, but not very severe um, arthritis, but some. So it's suggestive of that, that kind of age. And that's also indicated by a certain amount of tooth wear. He's um, a pretty robust and large male by the standards of his time. His stature is around six foot or thereabouts. And the average was at this period about five foot seven. And what our osteoarchaeologist, um, Professor Mary Lewis in the department observed um, very early on is that he has very robust muscle attachments on his bones. So this was someone with a powerful and well-built physique, which is, I think, quite interesting. And perhaps we can come on to discuss the extent to which this individual may have actually been a warrior in life or not. I think that's, that's an interesting debate that we could perhaps touch on a bit later. So this is somebody that is, is, is physically imposing. That in turn suggests that he had a good quality of life um, while he was growing up um, and is into adulthood as well. No clear signs of how he died, but that's not particularly unusual. Um, it may be that we might be able to pick up signs of trauma, however, with further analysis of the skeletal remains. Um, now, in some of the press reporting, I, I saw, um, I think from quotes from you, which, which may or may not have been accurate, that describing it as macho and butch. Is that, is that right? Is that, is, that, is that a fair um, assessment of what, uh, what he would have been? I think so. Yes. I mean, uh, you know, obviously those words were used selectively for the press. Um, but absolutely. I mean, this is a powerful, um, well-built, physically imposing individual. I think the word butch perfectly encapsulates that. And is there, um, I presume from the from from what you've said here, there's no doubt that this man uh, was a man. I mean, we've had this famous example of the of the uh, Burka warrior in Sweden, who who everyone thought was a was a man, a, a, a warrior, um, and then uh, analysis uh, subsequently proved that it was a, a woman. But there's no doubt that this person is a is is male, right? Yes, I mean, this is this has come out of. I mean, I should say that everything about this burial at the moment is provisional because we've yet to undertake the detailed analysis, but certainly from provisional analysis, all the indicators in relation to you know, the sex of this individual, whether it be the sort of pelvic measurements of the, the pelvis, for example, um, are strongly indicative of that gender attribution. I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. I mean, we do hope down the line to conduct DNA analysis on these remains. In fact, I was approached by somebody from the Francis Crick Institute just earlier this week, and that would be very exciting if we, we actually get the opportunity to do that. So I, I don't want to say anything sort of too definitive until that happens. 
Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There's been a lot of recent work, really interesting work, thinking about the, the, the performance and drama of burials that, that really compel us to think about their extended nature and all the different stages that lead up to the final act of the body being deposited in the grave. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Um, should we should we talk about that question of of uh, of whether this person is or or was a warrior, a warlord, or not, which you mm. which you mentioned earlier? So, um, so the idea of of this person being a warrior um, is uh, is due to the fact that he's buried with these um, sort of military goods and the and the robustness of of the skeleton, I guess. Um, that that's that's the the basic um, logic, right? Yes, I mean I think putting together the the if you like the cultural evidence, the the objects contained in the grave with the biological evidence, the skeletal attributes, um, does point in that direction. I, I think the issue, I mean, there is a there is a bigger debate here, um, actually one that was 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 very much developed by my predecessor at the University of Reading, Heinrich Harker who did an extensive study of so-called warrior burials from Anglo-Saxon England. Um, And what he was able to show is that a significant proportion of these individuals buried with swords and other weaponry, actually, if you examine them from a skeletal perspective, don't look as though the kind of individuals that could have wielded the weapons that they're um, um, buried with. Um, In some cases, they had quite um, severe disabilities, um, in other cases, you know, we know that, that weapons go into the burials of infants. Um, so what basically the, the point that he made on, on the basis of his extensive analysis is that there's a strong symbolic element to these burials. They're making a statement about death. And what they're doing is they're referencing a warrior ideology um, that existed at the time. So I think one always has to be careful on the basis of studies like that, not to read off um, particular, if you like, roles, um, social roles from burials like this. Um, it's dangerous just doing that in a very simplistic way. However, I don't think we can, um, we shouldn't sort of throw the baby out with the, with the bathwater at the same time. Um, we know that this was a very violent period. It's, um, you know, warfare was endemic. Um, uh, this, the particular region in which he was found, and we can talk about that a bit later, is one where we, where we know that there was considerable conflict in, in the sixth century. Um, so, you know, I think there is a case for calling this individual um, a warrior. Um, there is one other clue 
um, uh, within the kind of burial itself that suggests that he may have had uh, a life or his life may have involved active conflict. Um, uh, the One of the, the fittings from the scabbard, um, the, the fitting at the very bottom of the scabbard, known as a chape, has a an indentation or a nick right at the bottom of it. Now, we're very lucky in that uh, we have a, a, an expert on Anglo-Saxon swords that's working with us on this project, who's examined the, um, the evidence in person. And he thinks that that nick is in the right position to have perhaps been caused by um, a, a sharp imp implement, perhaps a, a sword, while the Marlow warrior was on horseback. So maybe a foot soldier or someone like that or someone fighting a, you know, on foot, um, sort of aiming a blow, directing a blow sort of up above, um, could have caused that damage to the, to, to, to the chape while he was riding on horseback. Um, that's a really interesting perspective and one that I would have totally missed because I just don't have that really detailed expertise. But, you know, I think, you know, I think in cases such as this, what, what, what you really need to do is you need to take a holistic view. You need to really look forensically at the range of objects that are contained in, in the grave. You need the biological perspective as well. And then you need to put it in its broader sort of historical stroke regional context and just weigh up to what extent that warrior label might be applicable. Thanks. That's um, that's 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 great. A good a good summation there, and fascinating detail on the uh, on the on the shape there. That um, and I guess the more analysis you do on the on this on the bones and the finds, the more uh, little details like that might uh, might come out. Can I just take you back to the um, genetic um, analysis, the DNA analysis you could potentially do on 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 the bones um, there? So you've not had a chance to do any, anything there as as yet on that. Um, and I, I guess I wonder what that would what that would tell us. Um, so, and that kind of drops us into the into the bigger picture a little bit, which is um, people will be wondering, I suppose, is this uh, a Germanic settler coming in, or is this a, a native Briton? And that rather presupposes a lot of things by making that statement. And that there's a there's a, a, a an argument going on, or a debate has been going on for for many years about uh, the level of Anglo-Saxon incomers into into England at this time and what sort of interactions they had. Um, so, would DNA analysis help us to understand that very much? Do you think it certainly would? I think DNA analysis combined with isotopic analysis of the, the skeletal remains together or in concert could give us a very clear idea of the origins of this individual. Now, certainly for the, for the press, the way the story was told is very much he was a, a local tribal leader. So in other words, he was somebody that was, was native to this region and his family, his lineage, um, perhaps grew to prominence and and and, and ended up sort of controlling um, this area. But there's, there's actually there's other hypotheses that could be plausible hypotheses that could be presented. I mean, one was actually suggested to me by somebody who responded to one of the articles. Um, sort of suggested that uh, could this not be a mercenary of some kind, whether from the continent or perhaps from some other part 
um, of southern Britain. I mean, this is this this particular part of the Thames Valley is a, is quite a flashpoint. Um, it's very strategic. You've got a limited number of crossing points um, of the Thames here, and this is the kind of area where there perhaps was conflict between what we might call Anglo-Saxon tribal groups and remnant British ones in the residing in the Chilterns. You know, this is the kind of context in which maybe mercenaries could have been embroiled. So there is a big question there. I mean, is this somebody that's indigenous to the area, um, a member of a prominent local lineage that can trace, that, can, that has several generations that can be traced back in this particular locale? Or is it a relative newcomer that's coming on the scene um, that he's using his for who you know he's using his military power prowess, or he's being conscripted because of that? I mean, so so I mean, I think that the 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 DNA analysis and isotopic analysis could help us, perhaps maybe not definitively make those distinctions. It could get us certainly down the down the road of being able to address those issues. And I suppose, so that would be really interesting um, if that work can be done. I suppose the other thing that might inform it is the is the bigger picture of, of where this um, burial is. And, th- and you've mentioned earlier, this is a single burial rather than a cemetery. Um, and that's, you've proven that by your, um, by your keyhole excavation technique. That's right. It, it appears to be isolated. I mean, the name given to burials like this, so isolated burials in prominent positions, Um, is sentinel burials. And there's a number of these from the Thames region. Um, Most of them tend to be a bit later than our example. They're more sort of 7th century. Um, But nevertheless, I mean, it it shares very similar characteristics in terms of being isolated and accorded a place of prominence. I mean, what's interesting about that is there are known Anglo-Saxon cemeteries in the valley bottom below this site, albeit very poorly recorded and understood because they were discovered uh, back in the 19th century as part of uh, railway constructions, things like that, works associated with the the actual Thames and the canalisation of the Thames. Um, So it really does deflect attention back on this individual. The The question is, why wasn't he buried along with other members of the community? down in the valley bottom. Um, conscious decision has been taken to, 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 to situate his burial apart and in a very special place that, you know, it's a, it's, it's a site that just dominates the local landscape. And the orientation of his burial, which was north-south, was such that he was buried looking over that landscape, um, the Thames floodplain below. So when you start, when you compare his burial to the other, some of the other known sites, it really starts to build an interesting picture about the distinctiveness of this individual and perhaps the perceptions of distinctiveness placed on him by the community and the mourners. And one of the one of the interesting things there um, is, uh, and it goes back to the point you're making about the flints earlier. Um, a, a lot of um, academics who work in this area have stressed um, sort of the performative nature of of burials at this time, and the fact that we ought to think about um, 
the actual events of the deposition and the people involved in the ceremony as much as what we can see now. Um, and I suppose if someone's putting a load of these flints on top of a burial, then that suggests, you know, that's that's obviously something that would involve lots of people, involve people doing that and would have had a quite an interesting end result. I actually grew up around in this area, so I know those flints quite well mm. and they're quite shiny and sharp. So it would have been um, quite a um, quite, quite an interesting effect, I would imagine. But w- would you be able to paint a picture of what might have happened uh, on the day when this burial was uh, w- w- occurred? What, what, what do you imagine would be the circumstances Circumstances and the and the and the sort of the result of the of the burial um, when it actually happened. That's a really interesting question, and I think it's one that really stretches archaeology to its limits. But um, at the same time, I think it it, it gets you really thinking um, about the you know the realities of, of of how burials could have occurred. I mean, for a very long time, archaeologists just really treated burials as as artefacts to be compared to each other. But you're quite right. There's been a lot of recent work, really interesting work, thinking about the the, the performance and drama of burials that that really compel us to think about their extended nature and all the different stages that lead up to the final act of the body being deposited in the grave. I mean, I think my my kind of reaction to that is that First of all, we've got to remember we're only dealing with a very partial record. We've got only a selection, likely, of the original objects surviving within that grave. There were likely to have been many more organic objects um, and materials placed in that grave, including we've got nothing of the clothing surviving, really, of the that was, was clothed in. We don't have any evidence for things like food offerings, which are very, very likely. So we have to sort of be um, very conscious of that. I mean, what I would say, and, and it's going back to his 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 burial location. I mean, one can almost imagine a procession from the the you know the the, the settlements, which is likely to be down in the in the in the in the floodplain close to the river. One can almost imagine a, a procession from that settlement up onto the hill slopes, reaching the, the final destination. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure you know, the idea of a, a burial procession is, is, is one that, you know, we can, most of us can, can relate to in some shape and form. But, I mean, that, to my mind, that would have had to have been a, an integral part of the performance of the burial. Um, so, so location is actually quite key to thinking about the burial um, in those terms. I think it's more difficult because we only have this partial record of what was actually placed in the grave to try, it's more difficult to start teasing apart the performance enacted immediately around the grave. I mean, the flints are very interesting in that regard. Um, you know, there could have been some element of performance. It may have not just, it's not, may, may not have been done in a very sort of uh, perfunctory way. Um, there may have been some performance to doing that. Um, there may be some sort of symbolic connotations behind the use of flints as well. I mean, um, it was a resource. It wasn't just kind of, you know, they wouldn't have seen it just as sort of geological material. They would have used flints like that in various ways, um, for, for, you know, in daily life. I think really thinking about the burial in those terms, it's it's the location, uh, 
it's um, uh, the, the the evidence for the grave being covered as well by those flints. So I think that's what perhaps those provide some of the most interesting perspectives. Thinking about the context more broadly here, quickly, there's uh, it, it, the late sixth century is is the period when we where we traditionally think of Christianity uh, being reintroduced into uh, into the Anglo-Saxon pagan um, peoples by the, the mission five nine seven Saint Augustine. Presumably, this is a little. This sounds like this is a little earlier than that. So there's no evidence of Christianity in this in this burial. I mean, you said it's north south rather than east west for starters. That's right. I think the date suggests that we're a sort of generation or two before Christianity starts to take effect. But what I would say is that there are other examples of these sentinel burials in the Thames area, which are, if anything, they're sort of later in the 7th century, and they are being buried precisely when Christianity is starting to take hold. So upstream, you've got the... Um, You've got the bishopric, the see, the Anglo-Saxon see of Dorchester being founded in as early as the 630s. And not very far from it, you have quite conspicuous furnished burials um, being made um, up to that time and indeed beyond. So we've got to really move away from the idea that furnished grave goods necessarily equal pagan. This concept has been extensively critiqued. Um, it is, however, a good question, I mean, an interesting question. To what extent can we really read religion and religious affiliation into a burial like the, more, the, 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 the Marlow warrior? Um, how much of what's being signalled in that grave is about his social position? Um, the affiliations that both himself and the wider community wished to um, signal. Um, or, you know, is there actually a religious element to that grave? To what extent to the, was it, was the burial rite shaped and structured by a concept of the afterlife? That's often how grave goods are perceived. You know, these are objects that this individual will take with them to the next world. And, you know, I, I think it's very, very difficult to separate the different factors and influences that shaped um how the burial rites were performed. Um, I personally think, I think it's very, I'm certainly, the way I think about these things is that there must have been some religious element to burials like this because, you know, dealing with death or is closely entangled with beliefs. So, so I think you can't rule out... Uh, sort of a religious element, but it's just very difficult to discern precisely, you know, how that's influenced uh, the, the, the burial itself. Yeah, absolutely. The, re the reason why I was, I was going with that was I was, I was thinking about the most famous um, sort of early, uh, early medieval Anglo-Saxon period burial, Sutton Hoo, which it sounds like is a little bit, it's a little bit later than, uh, than where we're at, isn't it? But that's the famous boat burial in Suffolk uh, with, with, without a body but with fabulous grave goods and some of them which have been have been sort of taken to to indicate a, a level of christianity or something going on so i just wonder is there any is there any comparison at all with with the with the glory of of the susan who burials in this and this site this is uh, this is a couple of generations earlier and you could argue that you know there's quite a a, a sort of a, 
a chasm in a sense between the society that existed, let's say, let's call this early 6th century, that existed in the early 6th as opposed to the early 7th. There's really quite profound and dramatic and rapid changes in society over that period. I mean, Sutton, who you, you would you know, it tends to be a, a period which we associate with the beginnings of the first historically uh, described and recorded kingdoms with hereditary di- dynasties, regional dynasties. Um, I think most archaeologists, not all, I mean, there is some debate about this, but, but many archaeologists would argue back in the earlier sixth, power and power structures are much more localised and fluid. You don't have stable hereditary power structures in quite the same way as you do um, in, in, the, in, the early, in the early 7th. Um, so I think we're looking at slightly different worlds. So I don't think it's appropriate to compare our burial directly with Sutton Hoo. And of course, there's a huge amount of debate about the religious significance of Sutton Hoo. Um, you know, some have argued that it was a burial that was almost like you know, it was communicating pagan defiance against recently converted kingdoms like Kent. So it's very ideological. Um, others would 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 argue, you know, quite the opposite. They would they would argue, well, actually, it's making a local statement. Um, it's not actually signalling or communicating religious identity as such. It's actually signalling, if anything, the extensive, far-reaching contacts that the kings of East Anglia had at the time, which enabled them to acquire Byzantine silver. It's a really interesting and live debate, and it applies as much to Sutton Hoo. The religiosity or otherwise of burials applies as much to Sutton Hoo as to earlier generations of burial like, like, like ours. Brilliant. I've, so, okay, so I've led us down a, a bit of a, a blind alley, maybe there with Sassanu, but it's but it's very interesting to uh, with what you're saying there because it does lead into uh, sort of the, the the wrapping up bit here, which is um, your observations um, uh, about what this uh, what this particular burial tells us about the power structures in play um, in in the sixth century and uh, what it might tell us about. Um, uh, the sort of proto kingdoms uh, that are that are happening here. So um, you've, we get Kent and Wessex and Mercia, um, these big Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, which at this point you wouldn't say that they're extant, would you? But they're but there are sort of tribal groupings that sort of develop into them. Um, and, and but in this particular bit of the country, you've 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 mentioned before that this this has traditionally been seen as a bit of a power vacuum and a, a sort of a, an intersection between those. Uh, those groupings, but what you're saying now, um, and you can correct me whatever I've got wrong here. But what you're saying now is that this indicates that that actually there was an important tribal grouping here, uh, exemplified perhaps by by this man. Have, have I got that in any way right? I mean, I, I don't. Yeah, I think I think that's a re- relative good summation of of the way I've been sort of uh, you know been interpreting the burial. I mean. What we can say and what this does really highlight is the the crucial importance of the River Thames as a communication artery, as a a corridor that encouraged and facilitated interactions across quite large distances, um, that was a source of power and identity. It's no 
accident that we get a whole cluster of these so-called sentinel burials in the Thames region. Um, Upstream of where we are in the Upper Thames area, that is the historic heartland, the Kingdom of Wessex. We're in a region that at various times was contested um, heavily by neighbouring kingdoms that subsequently grew into very important political players. And for that reason, were, were contributed to you know, the, the, the process that, that finally resulted in, in, in a unified England. So you've mentioned um, Wessex, uh, Mercia and Kent. I mean, one interesting sort of perspective is, 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 is potentially um, the extent to which Kent, which at this particular period was, was sort of exercised political supremacy over southern England, the extent to which it may have controlled this far up the Thames. Um, a neighbouring burial that was discovered in the 19th century called Taplow, which is one of our princely burials. So in terms of its richness, it's comparable to Sutton Hoo, but it was just quite poorly excavated. It contains a number of objects which are of Kentish origin and manufacture, and it has been argued that this individual may have been um, some kind of agent of, uh, of the, uh, the Kentish royal dynasty. Um, I think there, there, are, there are some reflections, perhaps, of those kind of contacts at an earlier date in our burial. Um, the glass vessel in particular, um, these are objects that were probably made in, in Kent, in eastern Kent, um, within the royal heartlands of the kingdom, there are one or two sites which have produced um, manufacturing evidence, actually, uh, the site of Liminge, which I happen to have spent um, several years involved in excavating. It's one of the first sites to have produced actual manufacturing evidence for glass vessels of this and related types. So we know that this was a centre of glass production, or Kent was a centre of pro- glass production. So it's interesting that we're finding... Um, glass of that origin in these Thames Valley burials. I mean, this particular example is not unique in that. I mean, some of the cemeteries known from the Thames Valley, um, the Upper uh, upper Thames Valley, include um, very similar um, glass vessels. So it may well be a reflection of the fact that uh, Kent is very much uh, in on the act, as it were, um, in controlling the Thames, or the Thames area, um, up as far um, upstream as, 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 as Marlow in the 6th century. But, I mean, it is interesting. It, it, it is, a, by contemporary standards, uh, a wealthy burial. It suggests that there are lineages and individuals um, in this area that, that are, are wielding significant influence and power. So it could have been, in the 6th century, uh, an autonomous political player, if you like. Um, it's just historical accident <clears throat> that it didn't take off in its own right to become a larger and, and more consolidated kingdom as we find it in neighbouring regions. I was reading uh, Professor Howard Williams's work on this topic, which uh, he's, he's written a lot on this, and he was he talks about uh, mortuary practices being mechanisms for the construction of memories uh, and the constitution of identity. So is that... Does that feel like that might be something that's going on here then, sort of, you know, trying to uh, lay claim to this 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 bit of ground through through some sort of lineage? 
Yes, I mean, the interesting thing there is that, you know, in this period, lineages can both be real and mythic. So, you know, again, that might, there might be relevance to the positioning of the burial. I mean, what we were unable to, to what, we, what we were unable to, uh, the link that we didn't find in this particular case is association with, a, with an older prehistoric monument. Now, associations like these are actually very, very common in early medieval England and indeed across the continent. The idea that you, you associate burials with prehistoric monuments as, as a way of, if you like, creating continuity with the mythic past. And then you can use that as a way of legitimising power and presence in particular landscapes. I mean, that's very, very interesting and it's widely attested. But in this particular case, there's no evidence for a, 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 a prehistoric barrow or, in fact, any, any notable prehistoric features on this site. So it's, it's slightly different in this case. If they are manufacturing a past, they're doing it in, 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 in other ways and perhaps in ways that we can't see because the evidence doesn't survive. So, so what next? Where do, where do we go from here? So we've got a huge program of research ahead. I mean, I think people often forget that the process of excavation is just the first stage in archaeological research. It's just that's just gathering the data. So we've got all the analysis and interpretation to do next. So this includes scientific examination of all the grave goods and their conservation to prepare them for long-term display in Buckingham, Buckinghamshire Museum. So they will be on display, they'll be going on display for members of the public there. Um, and really just maximising the opportunity that this, this, this remarkable discovery provides. Um, you know, trying to squeeze out using scientific techniques, more established techniques to really build as full a picture as we possibly can um, of this burial. And we've launched, uh, to help us with that, um, we've recently launched a crowdfunding campaign um, to, to help generate the funds required to do all of that analysis and, and conservation work. So the, the, the easiest way to, to find it is if you just type into Google or some other web browser, if you just go rdg.ac forward slash Marlow Warlord. So that's M-A-R-L-O-W, Warlord, W-A-R-L-O-R-D. Bit of a mouthful, but um, I think you're, you're going to publish, publish the text version of it. We'll get that onto the show notes for anybody who would like to support that, um, that venture. Right. Okay, well, um, that's uh, that's been a very interesting discussion about uh, death and burial uh, and, indeed, life and everyday society in early medieval southern England, So, uh, and, and very much um, uh, informed by this new finding, and we hope to hear more about it, and, uh, and maybe we can have you back on in a, in, a, in a year or a few years once there's been some further analysis to see if, uh, if anything further has, uh, has occurred. But uh, for now, uh, Dr Garble Thomas, assistant Professor of Archaeology at the University of Reading and excavator of the Marlow Warrior. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That was Dr. Garbo Thomas. To find the link to the crowdfunder for this project, 
check out the show notes to this episode. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow when Vincent Brown will be speaking about an 18th century slave revolt. <laughs>